And unto you, the slain and risen King, we lift our voice with heaven, singing worthy, Lord of all, oh, yet all the praise. Hey, Freshwater. Hope you guys are doing well here on the last day of May, like summer is here. So uh, hope you guys are doing well. Um, today we are going to be hitting uh, Ezekiel, the last message here in this series. And uh, as we begin, I invite you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 40, but uh, I want to ask you a trivia question. What's the name of the song and who wrote it uh, that is played at every coronation for any British royal for over 300 years. I mean, you want to talk about tradition. So uh, Google that, try to figure that thing out. And while we're on the topic of England, I got to tell you that my favorite book ever and movie ever is actually a trilogy, and it's The Hobbit. Well, actually not The Hobbit. The Hobbit's second. It's actually The Lord of the Rings. And um, the Lord of the Rings is my favorite one, and it's written by this guy, obviously, J.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien, um, as you start to read this book, you get this sense that this guy really believed this. Um, and, and not only believed it, it wasn't about fantasy. It was much larger than that because this guy loved Jesus. In fact, if you read just his story and you read the story of C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks about how J.R. Tolkien had a huge influence on him moving from atheism to following Christ. And in the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, it, it's this story, obviously, of this hobbit, but the grander story is this prophecy that's over a thousand years old about a, a king who comes from a line of kings that everybody thought has long dead and the throne has been abandoned. And, and that, that this king would come back at, at Earth's darkest or Middle Earth's darkest moment, right, and, and save the day. And, and that's the story that chronicles through these three books. And the third and final book is called The Return of the King. And, and what's interesting is, as J.R. Tolkien was writing it, in the background, he's trying to communicate, how, how do I talk about Christ in a way that would capture people? And, and this story, when you get into the third book, actually through it, you see how the land is groaning. You see how the people are groaning. And, and there's different responses to the return of the king. You have those who don't even believe it's, it's real, like that, that never happened or is not ever going to happen. You have those who want to believe but just doubt and have lost all hope. And then you have that remnant that does believe and is following the king and, and will die to see the king return to the throne. It's just, for me, as I look at that, it, it's... It's one of these things, now as we come to Ezekiel, it, it, it is the return of the king. That's what Ezekiel 40 launches into, and actually it started in, in chapter 36 and 37. And last week, what, what Pastor Sean talked about was this massive battle, and, and it was God pulling all the enemies all those who have been opposing Israel and, and, and really God's kingdom, he pulls them together. It's this final battle, and of course, God wins. The king wins, right, and conquers them all. And we pick up in chapter 40 with, after the battle's done, now it's the mopping up process, and now it's the, well, actually that was happening in 39, and now it's the establishment of the throne and the kingdom 
of the king. And we pick up in chapter 40, and the first thing that, that the king, Christ, does is he begins to rebuild this temple, right? And he starts to describe this. He gives Ezekiel a vision of the new temple, and you have the east gate, and he talks about the east gate, and he measures it, and what all that's going to look like. He talks about the outer court, and he takes them to that and shows them that, and, and how that's laid out, and the north gate, and then you've got the south gate. And then what's interesting is you read through this, palm trees, of all things, palm trees show up a lot. And uh, God likes palm trees, which I, I didn't know. I, I spent so much time trying to figure out what's, what's up with the palm trees in chapter 40. But it, apparently, God's, he likes palm trees a lot. So uh, they're in the temple, which I think is kind of cool. Um, so anyway, that, that, that's free. He goes to the inner court, and he starts to describe this and, and what that's going to be like. And he gets over to the chamber for the priests, right? And in chapter 40, verse 35, he says to Ezekiel, right, this chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. And the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi, which the Levi is the tribe of priests, but now he's saying, look, within the tribe, there were only these guys, the sons of Zadok, who can come near to the Lord to minister to him. And then he just keeps going on. He goes on and talks about the vestibule of the temple and then the inner temple. And, and, and you're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Time out. Time out. Like, hardly anybody ever gets mentioned by name specifically. When you look especially at chapter 40, 36 all the way to the end, it, there's nobody getting mentioned by name except this guy Zadok. And actually, this isn't the only time. He gets mentioned over in chapter uh, 44, right at the beginning. He talks, oh, not 44, um, 44, 15. The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray. And then chapter 48, Zadok's mentioned again three times. The king returns, the king's building a temple, and guess who he talks about? Zadok. Like, how many of you guys have ever heard of him? Like, I mean, I, I really didn't know about this guy until I'm reading it, but I, didn't, I had to study who this guy was. I mean, nobody's heard of Zadok. I mean, maybe some of you guys have, but most are like, who, who's Zadok? Zadok lived back during Solomon's time, and he was a priest. And Israel was starting to stray from God and going into civil war and chaos, and, and he stayed loyal to the throne to the covenant of God, and he stayed loyal to ministering and keeping the temple worship going. And, and there was moments where his life was threatened, like it didn't, you didn't know whether he was going to survive or not. And so here we are, and God looks at that moment where he's loyal and Israel's going astray, and he gives this, this tribute to him as he's pulling back his kingdom and restoring it. He's saying, I, I want the sons of Zadok close to me because they stay loyal. And, and here's what's interesting to me. You know what the song is that's played for 300 years in the coronations of, of the British royalty? It's called Zadok the priest because Zadok was there with the coronation Solomon and, and the king, I, I can't remember which name, I should have remembered that, back over almost 300 years ago, commissioned Frederick Handel to write 
a coronation song and, and he took a psalm of Zadok, which I think, ah, a little trivia there. So this guy, this is what I, I just, I want to point out something. It, it's not because he waved some shiny pointy sword, right, or rushed some hill with valor or was strong or was this the wisest in the kingdom the you know he wasn't israel's most sexiest priest alive or whatever they could do back there in the day right he didn't have anything other than this is what god said he was faithful he never went astray and and it just stands out to me because i think often we we want to we, we idolize or, or we think, oh, that's what it's got to look like to be this person that would be mentioned by God, that God would pay attention to. And yet, here we are, what, almost, what, 350 years after Zadok lived, and God mentions him. And the only reason he mentions him is because he was just this guy who never wavered. He just stayed true. And staying true to God is, is accessible to any of us. You don't have to be somebody famous and you don't have to be somebody important. God, he, there's, this, there's this evidence within here. There's something about this that just shows how much God loves those, whether they're young, whether you're a student, whether you're old, no matter where it is. He loves the people and he remembers the people who don't stray, but just stay faithful. It stands out here as we look at the return of the king. So he goes on and he starts to talk about the vestibule of the temple and the inner temple, and he measures these things and, and starts to describe different aspects of the temple itself. He goes into the temple chambers and he starts to describe the temple chambers, and he finally gets to the end of 42 describing the outlay of, of the whole thing. And he says this in chapter 42, verse 16. He says, He measured the east side with the measuring reed, 500 cubits by the measuring reed all around. He measured the north side, 500 cubits by the measuring reed all around. He measured the south side, 500 cubits by the measuring reed. Then he turned to the west side and measured 500 cubits by the measuring reed. He measured it on four sides. It had a wall around it. Guess how long? 500 cubits. Guess how wide? 500 cubits. And now, if you're, if you're reading this, you're like, okay, well, whatever, that's, that's fine. I don't know. Okay, great, we're measuring things. I don't even know what a cubit is. What's a cubit? Um, here's the thing. If, if you were a Jew hearing this vision for the first time, your jaw would have been like, right? I mean, you'd have to go put it, put it up. Because he's describing something here, and... and and it's massive. Now, uh, what you're going to see on the screen here is there's four different temples in, in the history and the future of Israel. So the very first one on that screen, you're going to see a little tiny rectangle. It's called the tabernacle. That was the portable temple, cloth table, tent-like tent temple, right? So they could set it up, tear it down when they were wandering in, uh, in the wilderness before they came into the promised land. Even when they were in the promised land, they, they used the, the tabernacle forever until then the first temple, stone temple, was built by Solomon. And so you see the second, you know, smallest image there, and that's the Temple of Solomon. And, and when you read that over in 2 Samuel, you think that's a huge temple. 
Fast forward, you know, the temple is destroyed. You read that in Ezekiel here. The temple isn't rebuilt until King Herod officially, right? And so King Herod, you see now the third largest temple. And compared to Solomon's, it's huge. It's more than double the size of Solomon's and obviously way bigger than the tabernacle. But Ezekiel, what Ezekiel is describing here is a temple that's 500 cubits by 500 cubits. It's massive, and that's the largest temple, and it's in the future, but that's the largest temple that's going to be built. It's huge. It dwarfs everything, and if the Jews were hearing this, they're like 500 cubits by 500. That thing is massive. And what Ezekiel is saying is there is coming a day when the king returns the first thing he's going to take care of is the temple. In the royal city, he is going to build this temple, which is really interesting because here's another trivia question. What sits right now on the temple location, the historic temple location? The Dome of the Rock and another famous mosque. And, and I, I'm not... I don't want to stir up any animosity towards Muslims. I'm just saying, what we think is happening, we, we can get distracted by what's going on in the natural realm, right? On the natural plane, that's all we see is, is what's, what's in front of us. But this story is so much bigger than this. And, and to, have, <laughs> to have the Dome of the Rock and that mosque, on that place. It is so much bigger than one person. It is, it is a, this revealing of a larger battle that has been going on since Satan fell from heaven and was cast out. It's defiance, open defiance, and planting that right there in defiance. And so there's, there's this moment right here as God says, I'm going to rebuild it. It hasn't happened yet, but we know it's coming. God is going to come to that temple site, and he is going to rebuild the temple. And as he describes that and finishes the description of the temple, he goes on in chapter 43. Here's, the, here's probably the best part, I, I would say, uh, of the, the whole book of Ezekiel. This is, this is the climax right here. It's chapter 43, and it says this, He led me, being Ezekiel, to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. The glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And at the sound of his coming, and, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the Chabar Canal, when, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It's the return of the king. And he references chapter 1, the, the glory. He was by the Chabar Canal, and he saw a vision of the glory of God. And, and I'd encourage, if you haven't heard that message, Kevin Kutzel preached on, on that, that chapter and the glory of God. you got to go listen to it, because it helps understand what's going on here in chapter 43. But God left. Fast forward to chapter 10 of Ezekiel. God left Israel. He's done. He left the land. And so what we have in chapter 43 is the return of the king. The king's coming back. The king's returned. 
The, the battle has been won. The, the, the temple where he would reside, this majestic temple has been built, and his presence has restored or been restored to the land. It's, it's the, I don't know how you would, how you, you picture this, but it's the glory of God. And, and what's interesting is as you fast forward even to chapter 44 and verse, verse 1, it says this, He brought me to the outer gate of the sanctuary with faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered it. And it's going to remain shut, which I love this. The king comes through this gate. There's only three gates to the temple. If you remember that picture of the image, there's only three gates into the temple. Now God comes into the east through the east gate. They shut it and no one else can use it because it's God's. And he's holy and he's, he's uh, majestic and he's eternal and all that God is. And he says, that's my gate and no one else is going to use it. I mean, kids, could you imagine... Like you had a door in the house. Actually, the front door was your door and nobody else could use it because you were just so awesome, right? Like, wouldn't that be cool? You can tell your big brother, your, your little sister, whatever. Eh, that's my door. You can't use it. See, God comes in here and he, he touches the, the gate, right? His glory comes through the gate and he says, no more will anybody use it. It's shut forever. And, and it's a promise here that the king has not only come, but chapter 44 is the promise that the king will never leave. It is to remain shut. The king's glorious presence is now in the temple and he's not going to leave the land. Promises are fulfilled. The king is here to stay. And I love what Ezekiel does. He falls on his face. You know, I've been listening to a song, what, what would you do if you walked into the room? It just answers, it asks that question over and over and over again. And here he's brought into the room with the glory of God and he just falls on his face. Falls flat out. There was no forethought to it. There was no plan. It was the glory of God is so immense and, and all that it's described in chapter 1. And he just falls on his face. It's so awesome. It's so incredible. What do you do in the presence of God? So the king's here and he begins to describe, hey, this is how I want you to worship me. And talks about the altar and... Chapter 44, he starts to talk about uh, the prince and how he wants him to rule and, and who gets in and who doesn't get in. And talks about how the priests, you know, how he wants them to minister. Chapter 45, he, he keeps going and talking about, okay, this, this is for this part of the building, that's for that, this is what I want you to do here, and the prince and the feast. And he finally gets to chapter 47. And, and we have this... This scene here, he says, He brought me back to the door of the temple. Behold, water was issuing from be below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And then, me, then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Do you get that? He didn't even go out the east gate right here. He had to go out a different gate, which, which I love. Um, gate's shut. 
Going eastward with the measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And then he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. And he measured, again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river. It could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, do you see this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabia where it enters the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the Dead Sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand by the sea, from Engedi to in Engleim, and they will be a and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, the Mediterranean. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh, for they are to be left for salt. And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So what happens here is the king comes. His presence is now established in the temple and immediately water starts going from the presence of God. It, it happened in Eden. Water flowed out of Eden. River uh, established from the presence of God and flow, flowed out and brought life. The, the Bible ends with the river flowing from the presence of God. And here we have, it's an incredible moment of the river of God is flowing once again. And, and it, it points back to chapter 36 or 37, I can't remember, where God says, I'm going to make it better. It's actually chapter 36, I think. He says, I'm going to make Israel, restore the land. It's going to be better than it was before. It's going to be like Eden. So there's a, there's a piece of this that this is a literal description of what's going to happen when God's presence comes. It's literally going to transform the land just like this. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be like it was always supposed to be and how it was created to be back in the beginning with God's presence in the land, bringing life to everything. And yet it's not just relegated to a literal fulfillment. This vision is also describing the spiritual reality that happens when Christ the King comes, even now. And so there's a partial fulfillment that happens here, and that will ultimately be fulfilled when Christ returns here to earth. And what do I mean by that? Well, Paul says very clearly that anyone who follows Christ believes on Him, they have become the place, the temple of God, right? We are the temple. Of, I think I just touched my mic. Sorry about that, Sean. Um, we're the temple of God, right? So it's now in us. Christ's presence resides in us. Guess what happens when the king comes to live within us? His presence is, is a metaphor. Or the water is a metaphor for his presence. So his presence flows in us and starts to flow out of us. And what does it bring? It brings life. It brings healing. It brings food. It transforms everything that's dead into life. That's the resurrection power of the king. 
It's, it's a powerful vision of that. And Jesus said, hey, look, if you believe in me, you are going to have streams of living water flowing within you. He says it twice in the book of John, references that idea of water, living water flowing in us. That's the presence of God. And so it's, it's a prophecy, not just it's a literal one for the land and for Israel, but it is a spiritual one for anyone who believes in church. It's part of the, the universal church. Every Christian swept into this promise. Every church that follows Christ, that, that doesn't go astray, right? That stays true to Jesus. This is what should happen. And if you're newer to our church, this is where we get our name, Freshwater. Came out of a vision, and that's a whole nother story, but this is where we got it. Out of this passage, and we believe that God gave this vision, this name to us, and named us Freshwater, because he said, this is what I want to do with the people of faith, the people who love me at Freshwater. I wonder, as you're looking at this and reading this, are you settling for something far less than this? Is your life described as the presence of God flowing in you and flowing out of you and bringing transform, transformation to your community, to your home, to relationships, bringing life, bringing healing, bringing food, right? The spiritual food people are longing to eat. I wonder sometimes if our vision for our lives is so small and we don't realize the king is in us and the king, the king wants to pour himself in us and through us into this world. The final chapter and a half of Ezekiel focuses in on the division of land. And what could happen is if you read through the book of, book of Ezekiel, by the end, you're just like, all right, okay, we're doing this. They get this part. They get that part. And you just kind of skim through it. So for us, it's like, well, that's not a big deal. For every Jew that's sitting there, they're listening to this, waiting for their tribe to be mentioned. This is, this is huge, right? Because Israel's kicked out of the land. The, the whole nation's destroyed. And what God does here at the very end, after removing them from the land, and they think the heritage is gone and the covenant is shattered, never to be returned. The king comes and he says this, I made a covenant with you that you would be given land. And I'm restoring that covenant in full. And he goes tribe by tribe by tribe. This is what you get. This is what you get. This is what you get. Every tribe is mentioned. And this is, this is like, you know, at the end of the movie where you got the last 10 or 15 minutes and all the, all the things you want to see resolved, get resolved. It's, it's the resolution. The French call it the denouement, right? It, it's, it's this, right? Because now when you get to the end of Ezekiel, you've seen the land restored. You've seen the king return. The glory of the Lord is there. The temple is restored. Worship is restored. The presence of God is there, and His presence is now going and flowing through the land, turning everything that was dead. The land is no longer groaning. The people are no longer growing. The people groaning. The people are now back in the land, back in the promise. All covenants have been fully restored, fully fulfilled. 
And it ends with this phrase. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. And that's how Ezekiel ends. The return of the king and forevermore the king will be there. It'll be known as a city where that's, that's where God is, the city of God. And if you read through 1 Corinthians, if you read through some of the teachings of Jesus when he talks about how you know, this, this end will come, the judgment, when you go into Thessalonians and it talks about the return of Christ and you get into Revelations, you read Daniel, there's all these stories that talk about and you put all these pictures together of this moment that's going to happen when Christ will come back. The king is going to return. He is going to sit on the throne. And I just want to speak into this because so many of us could start to waver, just like in, in the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where you just come after person after person who's given up believing in it, who's, who no longer believes the king's ever going to come back because it's just, it's impossible. That, w- that is just myth. And you have those who are struggling with doubt because evil is so great. Suffering is so great. And you see the suffering in our world. You see the land groaning. You even feel we groan as we look at this. And even what's happened in Minnesota. Like, how many of you groan? Like, we, I, I can't watch that. Like, in one weekend you see that, and then you see what happened with this African-American in uh, Grand Central Park, I think it was, um, where he's, he's just totally, uh, just racism. It's just awful. Our hearts groan like this should not be. How many of you go through sickness, go through death? I mean, even this year, there's so many families here that have brushed up against death and and, and we groan. And Jesus says, I am coming back. That, that is one of the things of the Christian Missionary Alliance. One of the, there's four things that we focus in on with Jesus. Like we are a denomination that focuses in on Jesus as our Savior. Jesus is our sanctifier. He makes us more like Him. Jesus is our healer. He heals us spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, every which way. He heals us, and He's our coming King. We hold on to this. We win in the end, guys. We win in the end. And there's a day coming where we will, we will be in the presence of Christ, the glory of our King. I just, I was reading a book recently, The Clapham Sect, and the story of a bunch of uh, uh, men and women in England who were, who really had a profound impact of the late 1700s, early 1800s on the course, the national course of England. Uh, these men and women were spiritual giants and just had this passion to see their country change and transform. But one of them, who had lived a long life, was on his deathbed and, and actually was, was aware, or the doctor, I think, told him that he had just hours to live. He got so excited, he lived another 24 hours. He thought he was going to die, but the thought of seeing Jesus kept him alive longer because he was so excited to see his king. So folks, when we see the nation's rage, 
And when we see evil triumph, and when we see the darkness, I am just telling you right now, the king's coming. The return of the king is imminent. Every generation since Christ has been looking for it. I think our generation is going to see it. And every generation is convinced of that. But I look at all this and I go, how in the world is Jesus not coming? Will you be ready for that? Will he find you waiting, faithful like Zadok, on your face, ready to worship him when you see his glory? I want to just leave you with that. Our king's returning. We win. We win. Like, we win. I just want you to keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. And, and just, I want to end with this. Jesus says at the end of Revelation, I am coming. And John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. There is a king seated among us. Let every heart receive him now. Where there is praise, he will inhabit. There will be grace and mercy all around. And every burden will be lifted in His presence And every trophy will be laid down at His feet There is a name that reigns above all others Jesus Christ, the King above all kings Unto the Lamb, honor and glory, worthy is He who overcame, buried in shame, risen in power, He is alive and stones rolled away. And all our worship will belong to Him forever. Death is conquered, and our Savior holds the key. There is a name that reigns above all others. Jesus Christ, the King above all kings.
It won't be long. We will behold him. And every tear wipe away will be at home. The war will be over. Soon we will meet our Savior face to face. And every burden will be lifted in His presence. And every trophy will be laid down at His feet. There is a name that reigns above all others. Jesus Christ, the King above all kings. And all our worship will belong to Him forever. Holy, holy, for all eternity. Yours is the name that reigns above all others. Jesus Christ, the King above all kings. Jesus Christ, the King above all. Oh, King.